through the book of Acts, sort of a summary fashion to begin with. And then uh, as we've gone through chapter one, we've seen the post-resurrection ministry of Jesus as he taught his disciples in the power of the Spirit until the day that he ascended into heaven. And he ascended, of course, there on Mount of Olives, and the disciples gazed on him as he went up into the clouds. And then they returned in obedience to Jerusalem. They spent time there in devoted prayer and fellowship one with another. The scripture also says in the book of Luke that the gospel of Luke, that they were also in the temple praising God. They had many reasons to praise the Lord. And then one of their gatherings we find at the end of Acts chapter 1 as Peter stood up and led uh, in uh, this company of disciples uh, recognizing that uh, there needed to be a replacement for Judas. He argued scripturally there needed to be a replacement. And uh, then they prayerfully asked the Lord to show who he had chosen for that task. And of course, Matthias was chosen as the 12th apostle, someone who had witnessed the ministry of Christ from the days of the baptism of John. And all the way to this point, this person had to be a witness of the resurrected Christ and uh, then also saw Christ ascend into heaven. And Matthias, whose name we did not see in the Gospels, is here. Uh, he's one among many disciples. We don't know all of the 120 who gathered, but there were many disciples who had believed on Jesus and who now have, uh, of course, known that he's ascended into heaven, he's resurrected, and they're waiting. They're waiting. And that's where we find them in chapter 2 as we begin uh, looking at the subject of Pentecost. And I want to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 21 as we consider God's word today. Scripture says, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Verse 5, now there were... Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, or Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, 
raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. May the Lord bless the word to our hearts today. Jesus had told the disciples in verse 5, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's a certain promise, but an uncertain timing. And as I was thinking about the promise thinking about specifically the Holy Spirit. Of course, they heard even from the preaching of John the Baptist about the one who would baptize in the Holy Spirit. And in the teaching of Jesus, there was, of course, Jesus' explicit teaching in John 14 through 16 about the Holy Spirit. Other, other times, Jesus' teaching about the Holy Spirit. And what, what did they know about the Holy Spirit other than what they had been taught by Jesus? What would they have anticipated? You just ask that question, what kind of opens up is the Old Testament and all of the Old Testament's teaching about the Holy Spirit. If they had read just the first two verses of Genesis, the Spirit of God is there hovering over the surface of the waters. He is involved in creation. If they read through the time of the Exodus, they would see the Spirit being placed upon the leaders of Israel, in addition to Moses, the 70 elders, two individuals who are mentioned, eventually Joshua, even Balaam was directed by the Holy Spirit of God. And then you get to the days of the judges, and I think that's one of the more exciting portions of scripture in terms of the drama of the stories because you see the spirit coming upon and literally the scriptures speak of the spirit clothing uh, himself with certain individuals and empowering them for some amazing things and you read about the victories of Othniel and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson and following that you have Saul and David in the times of the kings, spirit coming upon those individuals in the case of Samson doing mighty feats of strength and acts against the enemies of God to win the victory. Of course, as Saul was empowered by the spirit, he also worked victory for Israel. And then David, David, as he's anointed, the scripture says the spirit came upon him from that day forward. And we know the life of David in scripture. 
David had said when he sinned in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And that, for a New Testament Christian, sounds a little strange. But it does reflect the kind of work that the Holy Spirit was doing in the Old Testament. He was coming upon individuals. It didn't always, I think if you especially look at this case of Balaam, it doesn't mean that the person is necessarily even a believer. But the Spirit of God is sovereignly directing and working in ways that he does momentarily, maybe temporarily, and then removes his influence and his presence. In the case of Saul, of course, Saul was empowered by the Spirit, but there came a time when Saul had disobeyed the Lord, and when David was anointed, the Spirit of God came upon David and left Saul. And so, the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was personal, it was individual, it involved empowering an individual for ministry. And then, of course, there's the prophets. And whether individual prophets like Ezekiel or Isaiah, or whether just the teaching of the prophets about the Holy Spirit, there is abundant testimony to certainly the personality of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the involvement of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. There was anticipation if they understood the Messianic prophecies about the Spirit's influence in the life of Christ. If you look at Isaiah 11, when it speaks of the shoot that will spring from the stem of Jesse, the Scripture says the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And then it describes the spirit as a spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then it goes on to describe the Messiah's reign. Empowered by the spirit and serving God as the servant of the Lord. That's another portion of scripture. You could say are these portions of scripture that draw attention to the servant of the Lord and the Spirit's influence in the life of the servant of the Lord. But there are also prophecies about a time of restoration, a time when God was going to do something among his people that even after all of their sin and being sent into exile, he was going to rescue them and save them and renew them. These verses perhaps are unfamiliar, but Isaiah 44, the Lord says, Now listen, O Jacob, my servant in Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And of course, there's the prophecy of Joel, which we read there in Acts chapter 2, as Peter quotes it for the crowd that comes after the Spirit is poured out. But there's a building anticipation in the Old Testament, not only of the Messiah's ministry, but the pouring out of the Spirit upon Israel. And then Jesus comes, and Jesus, of course, as the Messiah, has the Spirit resting upon him. And you remember, Jesus spoke in terms of the Spirit coming, 
anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And John explains in John chapter 7 that he was speaking about the Spirit who had yet to come because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there's anticipation. John, of course, is writing that after the Spirit has come, but there's an anticipation in Jesus' teaching and Jesus' ministry, and of course, getting very explicit in John 14 through 16 of what the Spirit was going to come to do. Anticipation, anticipation, anticipation through the scriptures. Certainly, if you looked at the power of the Spirit when he arrives, things happen. Deliverance for Israel, mighty deeds. The ministry of Christ, of course, some have described as a blaze of miracles because what he was doing was the, 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 all these deeds and wonders in the power of the Spirit. As he taught, he taught with the words of God. There was no, uh, in, in any way, did Jesus speak anything other than the truth because the fullness of the Spirit was given to him. And of course, Jesus is the truth. He would speak the truth, but he was empowered by the Spirit. And that anticipation only built as he then, following the resurrection, says to them that not many days from now, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And now, in Acts chapter 2, that day has come. Jesus has ascended into heaven. Jesus has asked of the Father. The promise of the Spirit is, he's called the promise of the Father. Jesus is asked, and now Jesus is sending the Spirit, and we see the results of it here in the beginning with the sudden, and I would say spectacular, arrival of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. I say the sudden arrival of the Spirit, but the spectacular arrival of the Spirit, and we'll consider those spectacular elements. But before we look at those, I want you to notice how Luke introduces this story of what took place. You might have a marginal note in verse 1 there when it says, when the day of Pentecost had come. Literally, when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled. You look at the language, of course, the New Testament is written in Greek, and yes, it had come, the day had come in their calendar, but this feast, which had been prescribed by God hundreds and hundreds of years before is now being, in Luke's words, fulfilled. The meaning of Pentecost, the actual truth or the reality that the Pentecost feast was a shadow of is coming to pass, and now they're going to see it in person. Pentecost is a feast of Israel that involved a pilgrimage for those who celebrated it. That's why in verse 5, there are Jews who are dwelling there in Jerusalem, and they're from every nation under heaven. It's possible that some of them live there, but it's likely as well that Jerusalem was filled with pilgrims, people who had come from their native land where they had 
been scattered and lived after the times of captivity or times of exile, and they came together uh, to be in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. This is a feast that was celebrated. Uh, someone described it as a joyful festival marking the end of the wheat harvest. It was observed with designated as well as voluntary offerings. So they're worshiping there at the temple, offering offerings. Everyone, according to scriptural command, was to bring two loaves made from that year's wheat harvest baked with yeast as a wave offering along with other offerings. So they would take those and wave those before the Lord. And it was a sign or a signal of their thanksgiving to the Lord for his provision. And this is the first fruits. This is what God has done for them. And in thankfulness, they're waving that before the Lord, offering their other offerings according to the scriptural commands. And this day is a Sabbath day. It's a day of rest. It's a day that they would not have been working and instead were just rejoicing together in God's goodness. And it was really in gratitude to the Lord, celebrating the end of the harvest and his provision for them. Now, what's interesting is as we look at the scriptures, we understand that God sometimes used an image like that to convey, often did, a spiritual truth, a feast, a festival, particular sacrifice. All we have to do is think about the Passover. We understand from the Apostle Paul that Christ is our Passover, and we realize that the the reality to which the Passover pointed was the sacrifice of Christ. The reality to which Pentecost points is a harvest, but it's not just the, I mean, of course, it's every year Israel celebrated that they were rejoicing in God's provision for them, but there's a spiritual harvest. And even Jesus in the gospel spoke about that spiritual harvest. You know, in Matthew, when he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He was not talking about a harvest of grain. He was talking about a harvest of sinners. And he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. He's talking about reapers who are going to go and gather those who would hear the gospel and be saved. He says it also when he goes to Samaria. When he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. For they're white already unto harvest. And so there's a harvest of souls that is taking place on Pentecost in this chapter. That Pentecost, really the fulfillment of it. This is what that feast was all about in the first place. It pointed to a time when God would reap the first fruits, of course, the ministry of Christ. And I think there's a wonderful thing just from considering how Luke portrays this, that this is the fulfillment of God's plan, that God is doing things sovereignly to bring sinners to himself. This is his gracious plan to save people. And we haven't come to the end of the chapter yet, but Luke says he gives us a tip off at the very beginning by saying when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled and they are all together in one place. Now, who's the they? If you look through this chapter, we of course have the Jews who come. We have in verse seven, the Galileans 
We have in verse 14, Peter taking his stand with the 11. And as they ask questions at the end of the chapter, it's also the apostles who are in view. And so that's one of the questions as you come to this chapter, who exactly is in one place? Who exactly is it? Is it, is it all of the 120 who are spoken of in verse 15 of the previous chapter? Notice it says a gathering of about 120 persons was there together. We know some of the individual's names. They're mentioned earlier on as far as disciples. And I would argue based upon what seems to be the context here that the 120 and the other disciples may have been present on this day. Again, it's Pentecost. If you are a believing Jew, this is the place to be. Whether they're in this one place with the rest of the apostles is not clear. It doesn't say, but we know the apostles are there and we know that the ones who end up speaking are Galileans because that's the question that comes from the crowd in verse seven. Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, there were more Galilean disciples than just the apostles. And so we could say there is possibility of others, but at least we have the 12 apostles and they're all together, it says in one place. And then we have these spectacular manifestations of the spirit's presence. The first one is a loud noise. And we see those words, violent rushing wind, and we're immediately thinking in terms of the effects of the wind, but it doesn't say the effects of the wind. It says the noise, the sound. The word is echos, from which we get our word echo. But this isn't a secondary sound, and it is coming from a location. Notice it says, and suddenly there came from heaven. So from above them, as they're recollecting it and telling Luke later on, it's a noise that comes from heaven and makes a loud sound like, I don't know what you think of when you think of a mighty rushing wind. Is this like a hurricane or a cyclone, a tornado, whatever the case, if you've ever been in a place where suddenly there's a loud rush of wind, but here there's no effects. It's not like the disciples or the apostles are sitting there and their hair's blowing all over the place. They're just they're hearing this noise. It is from heaven. Their most recent look up into heaven was to watch Jesus go up into heaven. But now this sound is coming down from heaven and it fills the whole house. So it's loud enough. Nobody mistakes what's taking place as they talk to Luke at some point and tell the story. This is a loud noise. They're all sitting there. And then suddenly, the same time they hear this noise, there's the appearance of, notice how it's described here, tongues as of fire distributing themselves. Tongues as of fire distributing themselves. Have you ever seen that? I've never seen that. We're just left with our understanding based upon Luke's language. There is a word here that means to separate or to distribute. When it says tongues as of fire, in my way of thinking, as I've seen descriptions, this is like one flame that perhaps even looks like a tongue, but it starts to separate and they're sitting around and all of a sudden the flame separates 
and over each of their heads, there's the appearance of a fiery tongue. So it started together, but then it's being separated. And as it's being separated, the flame is spreading to each one of them individually. Now, the sound of wind, the tongues as of fire distributing themselves and actually resting upon each one of them. Just those two things, if you look at the broader context of scripture, wind and fire are associated with the very presence of God when God shows up in theophany. When God appears, for instance, on Mount Sinai, or as he appears in the burning bush, or as he's described as our God is a consuming fire, fire is associated with the presence of God. Remember, he led the people out of Egypt in the pillar of fire. So his presence is associated with fire. And then you could also say that wind in scripture is associated with his presence. In Ezekiel 1, God comes in a storm wind from the south. The book of Nahum speaks of the Lord being slow to anger, great in power. The Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds of the dust beneath his feet. When Elijah is in the mountain with the Lord, the scripture says a great and strong wind came and was breaking the rocks. Luke uses an interesting combination of words here, though. Notice what it says in verse 2, a violent rushing wind. And the word violent is the idea of that force. But the word that he uses for wind is just the word breath. He uses a very strong term, and then he uses the word breath. The word spirit, of course, in the Old Testament means spirit, wind, or breath. Whenever you see that word in the Old Testament, New Testament word pneuma is the same way. And the fact that he uses these two concepts together, power, but at the same time, just sort of like a gentle breeze. One writer used the term zephyr, which is just a soft, blowing breeze. You could hardly feel it on your cheek. And he describes this as a beautiful image of the working of the Spirit of God. How does the Spirit of God work? Look at the scriptures and see, yes, he does come in power, but when he comes and does his saving work, read through John chapter 3, he comes when someone is born of the Spirit and the Spirit is, is coming and his salvation is like the wind. You hear the effects. You don't know where it came from or where it's going. And God does a work in a soul by the power of his spirit. This writer went on to say, he is the infinite spirit of almighty power, but he works with compassionate kindness, never crushing people into line, but like a dove, gently wooing men to the love of God. And here, it's the violent rushing wind. Just a combination that captures something about, of course, we know this is the Holy Spirit. What's the third manifestation, the one that perhaps people are more focused on when they come to this chapter? It's the speaking in tongues. In addition to that noise, in addition to the tongues of fire, the flames spreading out and then resting on each of the disciples or the apostles, it says in verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. So now 
the Spirit is working in the life of each of these individuals who have this flame over their head and they're speaking in languages. And I think I can make this argument from the context here, languages that they had not learned, but were known languages. Languages that they had not learned, they had not uh, taken the time or gone to the place or learned from instruction from someone who came to Jerusalem. Some look at the gift of tongues as it's here and also in 1 Corinthians, and they categorize it as what's called ecstatic speech or speech which is either unintelligible to the speaker and perhaps to the hearer too, but somehow there's communication taking place. I say from the context, I think you could say that what's taking place here is they're speaking with other known languages. Why do I say that? Well, if you look down a little bit, verse 8, it says, and how is it that we each hear them in our own, and the word is dialect, dialectos. So these ones who come together and are hearing are hearing these individuals speak and as they speak, they're speaking in languages from where they are from, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. But this is taking place by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a miracle. This is one of those mighty works of God where he works in a person's heart and mind in such a way that they can do things they would not normally be able to do. It's the same kind of thing that happened in the life of Samson as he was given supernatural strength, as he moved things that no human being by themselves could move, as he carried gates up a hill. How could you do that as a single human being, even if you were very strong? The only way is the Spirit of God came upon him. Well, this is the Spirit of God coming upon a group of men who had been called to witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and preach the gospel and the spirit of God is coming upon them and they begin to speak in these other languages. Now, one of the issues as you look through this passage is what are they speaking about and who are they speaking to? What are they speaking about and who are they speaking to? And we're told what they're speaking about it seems in verse 4 that they could be speaking just to one another. There's not really an indication of what they're speaking in that moment. But we are told later what they're speaking as they speak down in verse 12, excuse me, verse 11. As they went through all the places that these people came to hear them from, we, it says we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So assuming, I think, based on the context that their speech or the topic of their speech as they're speaking in tongues did not change, what does the Spirit of God produce through these men as they're speaking in other languages? It's praise. It's glory to God. It's talking about what God has done. We're not given the exact content, but these men who certainly had observed the mighty deeds of God they had seen Christ come in the flesh. They'd seen all of his miracles. They'd seen his death and resurrection. They'd seen his uh, ascension into heaven. They're proclaiming the mighty deeds of God, the great things God has done. And so you could say the first thing that happens at Pentecost is a praise meeting, but it's a praise in other languages. It's not a praise in the language 
that the Galileans were used to speaking. Now, those spectacular manifestations and the spirit as he comes, and I would just encourage us to remember that as the spirit is giving them utterance, that's what they're doing, first of all. They're giving praise to God. That's how the Spirit works. He works to glorify God. He works to glorify Christ. He brings honor and glory to God's name. No one can say by the Holy Spirit, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that Jesus is accursed. That's not the Spirit of God working if he's speaking against God in some way. No, he's speaking through them, and he's bringing praise to God, and he's empowering these individuals to do something they've never done before. You have to say, if you were a disciple, one of those apostles, just the experience of doing that would have been an amazing thing on this day. The sound, what they saw, and now they're empowered to speak in a language they've never learned, and they're giving praise to God. Did they understand it? We know that the people who came did. It seems that they would have. Let's just look at what Scripture reveals here. Look at verse 5. After this takes place, the Spirit has come. There are the signs, these spectacular signs, and then they're speaking in these other languages. In verse 5, Luke introduces us to what's taking place there in Jerusalem. It says there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Devout is just a word to describe their religious activity. This doesn't mean they know Jesus as their Savior. It just means they're devout. That's why they're there at Pentecost. They're obeying God's word. They're in the place where God commanded them to be on a pilgrimage feast. And they are from every nation under heaven. That's... If we read through the scriptures, we understand why that is the case. Why are the Jews not here? Why are they not from here? Why are they not at least from Judea? Why are they not more local, but instead they're from every nation under heaven? Well, if we read the Old Testament, we understand that God did judge his people and scattered them. Scattered them into Assyria, scattered them into Mesopotamia. You look at even the context here, all these places, God scattered his people in judgment. But now he's bringing them back together. And as he brings them back together, he has a message for them. So these devout men from every nation under heaven, they're here at Jerusalem, and they hear, this is my interpretation of what's taking place in the the chapter, they hear the sound. Remember the sound back in verse 2, there suddenly came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. Again, that's the word echos. It's a different word here, and I think that may provide some of the reason for debate, because the word sound in verse 6 could also be translated voice. So I know that at least the King James says when this was noised abroad. Sort of another word that conveys something that got the attention of the community. Uh, uh, the reason I say there's a little bit of a debate, because if it's, if it's the speaking in tongues, you have to ask the question, if, if something happened right here in this room that, that, you know, all of a sudden people from the community came 
you'd have to say, well, what, what was it about what happened that people suddenly came? Was it the noise that they could hear outside? How could people just speaking in other languages attract the attention of all these people? Okay, so my, my thought is I've, and there are differences of opinion about the passage, but my thought is that really it's the sound of that mighty rushing wind that drew the attention of the people to this location. Because it says when the crowd came together, the very next phrase, when this sound occurred or when this, as some people take it, when they started speaking in tongues, the crowd came together. Well, it's possible that someone's listening and watching what's going on and they're saying, what's going on here? Hey, hey, go come, come look at this. And the news spreads that way. I just think it's more likely that it's actually the sound that brings them together. And then when they come together, notice the response or the reaction of the crowd. Look at all the terms. Look at verse six. It says they were bewildered. Verse seven, it says they were amazed and astonished. Down in verse uh, 12, again, it says they all continued in amazement and great perplexity. And they really don't know how to explain it. Bewildered, amazed, astonished, continued in amazement and great perplexity. What is it? Well, they're not so much concerned about the sound. What they are concerned about when they arrive is what's taking place. These men apparently, based on the passage, continue to speak. And they're speaking to the people who come in their native language the language that they were born into. That's what verse eight tells us. It says, how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And what's strange about that is not that somebody else would be speaking that language, but the ones that are speaking are, verse seven, Galileans. How do Galileans know the language of Elam? How do they know Arabic? How do they know Parthian? How do they know the language of Asia? How do they know Coptic in Egypt? How do they know Latin? You just look through this list and you can trace based upon the location, the different languages that would have been spoken during this time. And let me just list them. I think it's fascinating because when they describe all these different places, and you understand that these languages are being spoken, it's quite a list. Parthians, this would be roughly equivalent, the location would be modern Iran. Uh, the Medes lived in a highland area of northern Iran. The Elamites lived in southwest Asia, which would be the modern day eastern side of the Persian Gulf. Mesopotamia is the area between the Tigris and Euphrates River. Of course, Judea, which would be modern-day Palestine, Israel. Cappadocia would have been in Asia Minor. Pontus was in the Black Sea region, Turkey, same general area. Asia, different Asia, east of the Aegean Sea. Phrygia would have been western Turkey, as we know it today. Pamphylia, the southern shore of Asia Minor. Egypt is northern Africa. Uh, it says in verse 11, Cretans, so the island of Crete. And then Arabs, which would have come from the Arabian Peninsula, the language that would have been spoken there, Arabic. 
and then strangers from Rome. And one thing that caught my attention at the end of verse 10, it says both Jews and proselytes. Proselyte would be a Gentile who converted to, you could say, the Jewish religion. Okay, so there are, what does it say? Devout men, not to exclude women. There have been women, women there as well. From every nation under heaven, all Jews, or in the case of the proselytes, these are people who converted to the Jewish religion. And all of these people from all of these places, it's their native language that's being spoken by the apostles who are Galileans. Now, if you're from Hawaii as a native and you come to Akron and somebody says mahalo, aloha, or they talk about King Kamehameha, or they say something about the Hawaiian state fish, the humuhumu nuku nuku apuaa, you're, you're thinking, somebody's speaking my language. Somebody's talking in language that not everybody knows. And in the case of Elam, which I thought this was interesting, the Elamites there in verse nine, uh, it says Parthians and Medes and Elamites the Elamite language, as I understand, is what's called an isolate language. It's a language that doesn't have another connected language. Some of the language that are spoken would have been kind of a dialect of a main language. For instance, Greek, maybe Latin, a particular dialect from that language. But that language, I mean, how do you learn Elamite unless you go to Elam or you know someone who's from there. And the Jews who lived there came to Jerusalem and said, somebody's speaking our language. And they're talking about the great works of God. Just wonder and marveling and questioning. That's why it says in verse 12, they all continued in amazement and great perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? What does it mean? And what's interesting is this is not necessary for communication. It is communication, but it would not have been necessary for communication for these Jews who likely knew, based on what we understand from Scripture, Greek. Hebrew was a dead language, but they likely spoke Aramaic as well. So you have Jews that come, they know the language of the people, Aramaic, and they probably know Greek as well, but the language that's being spoken is their native language. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, it doesn't have to be their native language in order for them to communicate or in order for the apostles to communicate with them. The apostles could have spoken in Aramaic. They could have spoken in Greek. And likely those who had come would have been understood. But the way in God is working in this day is he's, he gives the gift of tongues to these disciples, these apostles, and they're proclaiming the wonderful works of God to all these devout Jews who've come here on this occasion. So it's not necessary for communication. It is drawing their attention to God because in verse 11, it says we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they're asking then, what does it mean? What does it mean? 
And that's a question that sits there at the end of verse 12, but there is one explanation that was offered. These guys are tanked. They are full of sweet wine. These guys are drunk. That's why they're saying all this gibberish. Now that's a scoffer and that's a mocker and that cannot stand when God is going and is doing a work and Peter, certainly for the honor of God and to explain what's taking place on this day, then takes his stand and speaks up. And he refutes that suggestion in just a brief word as he addresses them. Look at verse 14, but Peter taking his stand with the 11 raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Let me have your attention. I'm going to explain to you what this means. Now, to this point, Peter's been speaking in, I don't know, Greek, Latin, Elamite. We don't know. It doesn't tell us which apostle was speaking which language, but we know he was speaking something along with the rest. But now he's communicating to all of them and as he preaches and, and proclaims, he says in verse 15, first of all, to get this out of the way, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. If somebody's going to get drunk, it's going to be later in the day when they've had more to drink. They've had more time. This is just third hour of the day is nine o'clock in the morning. And so this isn't even the time of day when people get drunk. No, that's not what's going on. But what is going on is God is doing something. And he identifies, and again, you have to ask, where did Peter come to this passage? Was it in that time when Jesus was giving instruction? Was it in his own study of the Old Testament when the Spirit would be poured out and there would be something happening you know, in the nation, restoration of the nation by the pouring out of the Spirit. We don't know. All we know is that when Peter does speak out, he quotes from Joel, he quotes an extensive portion of Scripture. And he answers their question, what does this mean, verse 12, with this? Look at verse 17. This is what, excuse me, verse 16, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And he goes on to describe the wonders in the skies, signs in the earth, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. Verse 20, sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And there's a promise of salvation in these days that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So whatever is taking place here, this is, according to Peter, verse 17, this is the last days. And this is God pouring out his spirit. Now, just think about that. God had promised to pour out his spirit. The Lord had promised to pour out his spirit. Who's pouring out the spirit? It's Jesus. Peter's going to go on to argue after he preaches the gospel that what's happening on this day is, yes, the Lord 
is pouring out his spirit. Jesus Christ is Lord and Messiah. This is Jesus who is pouring out his spirit. Jesus has risen. He has ascended into heaven. He has sat down at the right hand of God. God has made him, Peter says at the end of this sermon, both Lord and Christ. He has asked of the Father. He has now poured out his spirit upon his people for his work in the last days. Now, we have to take some time, and we will have to take some time to consider exactly what Peter's sermon is all about, and even this this quotation from Joel. I don't believe what Peter says here is all being fulfilled, at least not on this day. There's some who believe that, but I don't believe on this day everything is being fulfilled. But in the very least, it's the pouring out of the Spirit. And notice Peter's words there as he quotes Joel, it shall be in the last days that God says that I will pour forth of my spirit on, what does it say? On all, on all mankind, on all, literally it's the word flesh. Just go back with me for a second. Think about the Old Testament. Who is the spirit coming upon the Old Testament? Moses, 70 elders, Joshua few others in Israel, even Balaam for a little bit of time because he was going to curse, God forced him to bless. The judges, temporarily, David, Saul. But now there's not going to be a discrimination for certain individuals. Now, It's the, if I could put it this way, it has to be somebody who knows God and believes, but it's an indiscriminate pouring out on all flesh. And that's what's emphasized in the rest of verse 17 and 18. Look at verse 17. When he says, I'll pour forth of my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters and your young men and your old men, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. Everyone is going to have the Spirit. You see the difference? Whereas in the past, God is just choosing and selecting individuals to accomplish his work. Now, as Christ has risen into and, and ascended into heaven, he's now pouring forth his Spirit so that All of those who have the Spirit receive it, of course, as a gift and are doing then God's work. And that work is giving testimony to Christ, to the risen Christ, and to the gospel message. Now, there's much more teaching following this, even in the book of Acts, about the Holy Spirit. But I think what you could say here is what is happening is unprecedented. Because not only are all of these apostles given the Spirit, but any believer would have the Spirit. And the promise, as Peter gives it at the end of his sermon, is that anyone who believes would receive the Spirit. Let's let's note that just briefly. Look at verse 38. As Peter comes to the end of his sermon, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not only is it indiscriminate in terms of the promises, but now as Peter is preaching the gospel and offering salvation, 
anyone who believes will receive the gift of the Spirit. We have to explore what that means, and certainly what does the Spirit do in the lives of his people? Well, here's exhibit. It's not really exhibit A because the Spirit of God has done quite a bit before this, but in terms of the book of Acts, exhibit A. Here's the kind of thing that the Holy Spirit can do for the glorification of Christ, for the glorification of God's mercy and grace and power. Just one more thing I want to share that will be done. My understanding, and I was listening to someone preach on this text, and they talked about the day when Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth, was uh, coronated. And in connection with her coronation, gifts were sent to all of the children in the kingdom. And so you can find there's a exhibit at the Liverpool Museum where there's a, a mug that has a picture of Elizabeth and the flags and and it it recollects or it's a remembrance of her coronation. There were also tins of chocolate given out and other things. So in other words the coronation came with a gift from the queen to the people. It was a signal of her grace towards her people, especially their children. And to be one of those children, wow, gift from the queen. Well, that cup is, some carry it with them surely through their life, maybe passed it on to others when they died. But just think about a gift that you receive and you never lose it. Never. And that gift has with it eternal life and health every day of your life and the assurance that you will be resurrected. Christ is ascended. He's sitting on the throne. He's pouring out the mightiest gift that anyone could ever receive upon his people. And through Peter's representation as an apostle, Peter is offering that gift to anyone who will believe on him. Anyone who will submit to his lordship, anyone who will repent and turn from their sins and trust in him. This is the gift you will receive. A gift of eternal life. A gift that ensures the resurrection. A gift of an advocate and a comforter who would be with you forever. What a mighty gift. And Christian, you need to give thanks to the Lord for the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, understand that what Peter's preaching on this day is still effective today. If you turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus, he will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that will happen is things will make sense. The word of God will come to 
greater understanding. It's not that you'll understand everything immediately, but the spirit is there to both illumine to the point where someone trusts in Christ and then gives them understanding of the things of God. That's how we discern spiritual things. So I want to just call you today. If you don't know the Lord, if you don't have his spirit within, come to him. He'll give you that gift. And if you do, Christian, rejoice. Remember, Jesus was talking about fathers who, even if they're evil, know how to give good gifts to their children. What did he say? How much more shall your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, fathers can give their children good gifts, but in terms of a gift, what greater gift could you have than the presence of God himself in your heart to grant you eternal life? We have much to give thanks for today. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Before I pray, I just want to say if, there's someone here who has not yet trusted in Christ. I just want to say I'd be glad to speak with you. Members of our church would be glad to speak with you to show you the way. The message of the gospel is clear. The invitation is open. And that could be yours today if you just called upon the name of the Lord. That's what Peter says. He says, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's calling upon him in prayer, asking him to save you, and he will do that. If you want some help with that, I would be glad to speak with you. I know members of our church would be glad to speak with you. And uh, don't put that off because you could have that gift today. And, of course, you have it forever. Lord, we commit our time that we have spent in your word to you. We ask, Lord, that the truths that we have meditated upon and thought about then pressed upon our hearts, we pray that we might believe the truth. We pray also, Lord, that as believers, we would be grateful for what you have given to us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, for those who do not know you, we ask that even today would be the day of their salvation, that they would put their trust in you, that they would not refuse the gift by not taking it, that they would turn from their sins and put their trust fully in you. Just as the proverb says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean to your own understanding. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us direction as to how we can put our trust in you. Call upon your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.